Today's interview is brought to you by YCharts. For a free trial and 15% off your subscription, go to go.ycharts.com slash forward dash guidance. Here with Daniel DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist of QI Research. We just are coming off of the Powell press conference. Federal Reserve did not raise interest rates. Is it a pause? Are rates going to come up more? We don't know, but the stock market did not like what Powell had to say, selling off uh, nearly 1%. Danielle, great to have you back here. Let's get right into it. What what do you think of everything? The dot plot, uh, Powell's speech, the statement, what are your broad thoughts? So, you know, I'm always attendant to when Powell goes off script. I mean, I mean, he had a laptop today for his for his statement, for his remarks. Um, so I pay attention when he goes off script. He went way off script when the Reuters reporter asked him if soft landing was his base case. Mm-hmm. So I found it to be really fascinating that he was like, no, no, repeated himself twice. Yep. And yet the committee, the dot plot tells you that they just increased their expectations for GDP growth and decreased their expectations for the unemployment rate. So everything's better. And yet in Jay Powell's mind, and we have to bear in mind, as long as he is chair, it is Jay Powell's Fed. And in his mind, soft landing is not the base case. Yeah, that, that really stood out to me. And Daniel, I want to give you credit uh, that you, before you had some predictions about what was going to happen with the Federal Reserve's uh, predictions, uh, summary of economic projections, which they publish every other Fed meeting. And you said that core inflation would be revised down, headline inflation would be revised up, unemployment rate re- would be revised down, and G- real GDP would be revised up. And you were four for four. That is exactly what, what happened. So what did you think of the economic projections that came out at 2 p.m., 30 minutes before Powell um, spoke? And uh, uh, yeah, what do they indicate, as well as the dot, the dot plot, where you know, level of interest rates is well, going to be? A, Jack, if I'm four for four, I need to go buy a lottery ticket. Um, but, you know, what I thought about the direction was the magnitude. They didn't, I mean, it's it's meaningful that the unemployment rate is not going to be 4.1% anymore. It's going to be, excuse me, it's not going to be 4.5% anymore. It's going to be 4.1%. They didn't, there were no tweaks. Mm-hmm. GDP growth is not going to be 1.5. It's going to be 2.1%. These these were not like economists being economists. These were bold, big moves, basically saying we think the economy's on much stronger footing than we did at the beginning of the summer. And that's despite everything happening in the background, despite all that we know is going on right now, all the forms of uncertainty, all the idiosyncrasies. And boy, he 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 named more than what existed. Nobody, nobody mentioned an oil shock. He did. Mm-hmm. Nobody uh, mentioned uh, student uh, loan repayments. Yeah, and, and and he did. So again, this is this is the lawyer in Powell. This is the non-academic. This is the non-PhD. In in that that is who he is because he's taking everything into account. Reasonably reasonable beyond. I mean, he's sounds very lawyerly right now, and yet. The Fed is more sanguine. Go figure. What do you What do you mean by that? The, the Fed is more sanguine, but Powell isn't. If the Fed is more sanguine, then Jay Powell gets mm. higher for longer, and come what may, that's all he wants. So whether he's going to get it from his committee members and his board members or not, he wants his excuse to stay higher for longer. And when you rip 
two rate cuts out of the forecast over the next two years, I'd say that's higher for longer. That's the textbook definition of higher for longer. And that's exactly what he got. He got what he wanted. And he yet if soft landing is not his base case, which clearly the dot plot is screaming soft landing. Mm -hmm. 2.1% is it's a robust growth figure for the, the economic forecast. If the economic data is what the Federal Reserve uh, staff and, and members forecasted to be for 2024, that will be a soft landing. That will be a soft landing. Absolutely. And yet he that's not his viewpoint. That was again, there was a lot of conflict that I picked up today. But we just we just had two extremely progressive economists who were confirmed onto the board by the Senate who are going to be around for 14 more years. Uh, and, and, and you, you see a greater disparity, not in 2023, you've got 12 who are saying one more rate hike, seven who are saying there's not going to be another, another rate hike, but you've still got a majority saying there'll be one more rate hike in 2023. Then you get out to 2024 and you can drive a Mack truck through the disparity on that board. Yeah, let's just put that on. So the left chart is with the last dot plot on in June and the right is uh, where we are today. Yeah, so a lot of uh, folks still think in 2025, interest rates could be above 5%. Mm-hmm. Although the higher peaks of, you know, like 6%, 6.5%, those are, seem somewhat off the table. Yep. Uh, Danielle, I have to say, you know, normally my interpretation of the dots and what Powell says is somewhat in line with what the market uh, expectation. So, you know, if he says something dovish, yields go down. I expect yields to go down and they do, do go down. But I had a pretty different read today because I just noted, and maybe it's just a linguistic quirk that's, I'm, I'm putting too much, assigning too much relevance to it. But Powell said the words, be careful and proceed carefully. Carefully. Uh, many times, I think five or, or six times. Yeah. And it was the first time uh, since March that he said that word in uh, in his speech before talking to, to uh, the reporters and answering their questions. And this is really important. I didn't go back that far, but previously when he said carefully, he's saying, oh, we're going to watch that piece of data carefully. We're going to monitor this carefully. But I don't think he's been saying, we're going to be careful. We're going to proceed carefully. And that is a linguistic uh, note that I think that the the cutting uh, cutting rates in 2024, Powell has reified them. Yes, they've appeared on the dots, but he, I think for the first time, seriously acknowledged that the cuts are going to happen, which to me would be somewhat dovish. Hence, the two-year would would stay where it is and or go down. And yet, the two-year yield, you know, pricing in where the Fed is going to be, is up uh, six or seven basis points. Now, mm-hmm. You know, six basis points at 5.16%, you know, highest level since 2006. And as I said at the beginning, the stock market is down. What did you make of the market's reaction where you know, yields up, so bond yields, uh, bond yields up, bond prices down, and stocks down? Mm-hmm. Well, again, um, I think that that what markets are beginning to understand is, yes, okay, so Jay Powell has a rate cut in his mind. He knows that 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 the labor market is rebalancing. He used that word a few times. So he sees that the supply demand disconnect is is starting to come come more into into balance. But there are fewer of them, which means higher for longer. It's not, this is not going to be a slash and burn, get the machete out, take interest rates back down to the zero bound. There is no zero bound on the dot plot. None. None. 2% your new floor, period, end, which I've been maintaining for a very long time. But more importantly, it's the pace at which 
he anticipates easing policy. So as carefully as he is, he also said it doesn't really matter right now where rates are. Why? Because we're how many times did he mention the balance sheet, Jack? Zero times? No, no. Many, more than he ever has, significantly reducing the balance sheet, significantly uh, reducing the balance sheet. I, I and, he, and the word he used was significantly over and over and over again. And that alludes to the Logan plan. Lori Logan, head of the Dallas Fed, the idea that come 2024, okay, so there's a rate cut. QT's off the table. We're going to keep shrinking the balance sheet. I got a question about the, the, the balance sheet for you later. But first, I want to say when you, about you know, neutral level, the long-term interest rates, it's not going to be 0%. It's going to be 2%, maybe even 2.5%. Uh, Mike McKee had a great question that if you're forecasting, maybe it was Leesman. I think it was Mike McKee, though. If you're forecasting, uh, actually, it was Steve Leesman. But if you're forecasting you know, three years of interest rates are going to be 4%, 5%, maybe you know, 6%, 4%, 4%, 4%. What is this whole long-term thing, this long-term forecast for a rate? Does that even matter? Does, is that representative that actually, when do you say, hey, wait a minute, maybe the neutral rate is 3%, not 2.5% or 2% or 4%. And Powell yeah, said, hey, yeah, maybe you're right. And, and he also drew a distinction between new, uh, the neutral rate and the longer-term rate, which I didn't really uh, get. When he has his memoir written one day, it's, it's going to be titled Chasing Our Star. <laughs> um, and... Something else that I noticed that he did today was he put the dot plot in the back seat again. Now, he had he had some respect for the dot plot. When he first came on as as chair, I'm talking about 2018, he basically put the dot plot in the garbage, just flushed it down the toilet. A few meetings ago, though, you know, he actually was very respectful of it. This time he threw it out again again. So um, it's interesting, but I think your, I think your biggest takeaway is not that he sees a particular level. His last press conference, he kind of said, our stars BS ish, if you recall, but this meeting, he, he, I, I think his emphasis at this podium was I will accomplish higher for longer. And if Leesman was asking if this is a regime shift, the answer was yes. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, th- th- this goes against the playbook. This goes against investors' playbook of the Fed put. It simply does. Because this doesn't work. This does not work to have my back. This is not the Fed put at all. It doesn't even faintly resemble it. Yeah, I, I think it could be kind of a buy the Fed pivot rumor, sell the news, because I think, in my opinion, today's uh, speech and, and talk by Powell acknowledged the potential for a pivot the most compared to any previous one in this hiking cycle. But the market had already priced in so much cutting that it just wasn't enough, maybe. Right. Well, plus, again, he took 50 basis points off the table. He took it away. You're not just... A, over the next two years. I mean, that's just, that's rude. Um, but again, what he's, it's what he's conveying, Jack. It's what he's conveying. And, and, with, and with the balance sheet. He's just, he's just saying there's, there's a new sheriff in town. 
And, but again, I, I go to the disparity. I go back to the disparity. He has fewer friends. Now he's got some frenemies. Yeah, talk, talk about frenemies and the politics of the Federal Open Market um, Committee. When you think he said, be careful, was that coming from him or, um, uh, you know, was that, was that on his iPad that was written for him by, you know, by the committee? Because I think it was kind of unprompted. And if he is Mr. Hire for Longer, why is he talking about being careful? Being careful would mean, you know, no cuts, maybe even more hikes. Well, he has to be cognizant of everything that's going on right now, right? I mean, he, he didn't even mention the employee retention credit going bye-bye. Mm. Uh, and that was pumping actual cash into the economy, unlike a lot of other forms of stimulus, green spending, blah, 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 infrastructure, traditional pork belly spending. But he has to say lags. And, and sometimes when he says these things, his, you can almost see his eyeballs rolling to the back of his head because he's playing to his committee. Mm-hmm. He's, he's doing, I mean, because the, the deliberations in the room are very deliberate. And right now, you know, there's a full, you know, Jefferson, Cook, Daly, Goolsby, Williams defected and went yep. back to the dubs. When you said he defected, he said that John, what he asked about John Williams' comment that reductions uh, or cuts are needed as inflation falls down mm-hmm. about targeting a real, real level of interest rates. So if, you know, inflation now is four and interest rates are five and a half, mm-hmm. real, interest ra- real interest rates now are 1.5%. But if inflation goes down from four to two, then that will be... Uh, even higher real rates. Yeah, even yeah, even higher real rates. Thank you. So cuts would be needed, and that that is a dovish comment. So he, Powell was asked about that. So and and I would expect when, when when what I heard him say about real rates today was that's a good thing. Real rates mm-hmm. are they're high, they're and he said they're 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 pretty high. He said and then he said and that's a good thing. He wants to see an economy that can function with positive real rates. That nobody else wants that. <laughs> nobody mm-hmm. wants. Nobody wants higher real rates. Give me a break. Higher real rates mean higher. You know, mean things really break. And again, he also when he said that the soft landing was not his base case, that also completely defied what John Williams said, which was we're not going to have a recession at all. Mm. So. To me, the most interesting political development in the past year is Williams defecting. And why did he get to do that? Well, because he's got a lot more doves than he used to have after these Senate confirmations. So he knows that that that, that they can build up a contingency that is against, you know, Powell, General Powell. They know that they can create mutiny. Hey there, I want to tell you about YCharts. It's a state-of-the-art platform that helps you on every stage of your investing journey, from idea generation to portfolio construction to performance tracking. It's going to simplify your investment research process so you can act on an idea right when that light bulb flicks on. I use YCharts every day, not just to make charts to show in forward guidance, which I'm sure you've seen, but for fundamental research into macro and companies as well. For example, in March, I needed a crash course about the issues regional banks were having. You can probably imagine why. 
So I used the YChart stock screener to find the cheapest regional banks with a variety of metrics, and that led me to the companies that were at the eye of the storm, and that helped me a huge amount. These are some of the ways I use YCharts, but I've only scratched the surface. If you're an investing pro, they've got much more powerful tools for you. Scatter plots, time series analysis, report building, and client communication. I know YCharts well, and I like to think I know my audience well, so I know that there are a lot of people watching this right now who would benefit immensely from YCharts. Whether you're an individual investor or a professional in the wealth management business, whatever stage you're at, YCharts is going to help you get to the next level. So you really should check them out. Go to go.ycharts.com forward dash guidance. And by the way, if you click that link, we can get you a free trial. So at no cost, you take it out for a test drive, see if YCharts is a good fit for you. And what's more, if you're a new customer and you sign up, you can get 15% off your initial subscription using that link, which again is go.ycharts.com forward dash guidance. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the interview. I want to ask you about the price of oil, which is obviously an incredible, uh, has an impact on inflation. That's in the headline, not the core, core inflation. Mm -hmm. um, so Powell made some sort of comments like we we like to look through in, in, uh, uh, oil price spikes. So if the price of oil goes up and it's just temporary, then you know we're not going to hike to interest rates to seven percent just because one reading is going to be seven percent because the price of oil spiked up. And the oil, you know, I mean, earlier in the summer, the beginning of the summer, it's, oil was at seventy dollars, and now it's pretty close to a hundred dollars uh, for the for Brent. The, the, I mean, headline inflation is going to come in pretty hot, right? It is, and he mentioned oil shock among his uh, among the factors that are that that could, that could swing the data one way or the other. Um, so this, this is very real. And one of my predictions going into today was that he would find some way of bringing oil prices into his narrative that had been, I don't, I don't think I heard him mention the word supercore. Mm, I, I don't think I did either. Yeah. I don't think he mentioned supercore. And that was my, that was my biggest guess. And it was just a guess going into today was that he was going to broaden his lens and take into account more than just his supercore. And supercore is uh, inflation minus energy and food, but then also minus shelter. Just, just shelter, right? Or is it just services x? It's it's core services x shelter. So it's a very specific. Very component. narrow. I mean, extremely yeah. narrow. And it's a narrow read that, by the way, is going to shift once we have healthcare, how it's factored into the CPI, that math is going to change come October. So we're going to see the super core come under some upward pressure. That being said, you know, I'm not sure if you noticed a few days ago in one of the feathers, we, we teased out discretionary inflation and non-discretionary inflation. And we actually have deflation in discretionary goods inflation. Prices actually falling and that's a sign that companies are losing their pricing power because households are having to spend so much more on rising non-discretionary inflation, things they absolutely have to buy, the essentials. Inflation on the essentials is going up, and you're seeing deflation on the discretionary side. So what do you th uh, think, if, if core disinflation, super core disinflation continues, even deflation, uh, but the price of oil is at $110 in December, and relative to December of 2022, it was in you know, $70 or $80. And so that is really pushing year-over-year you know, -year headline uh, measures of inflation up to, let's say, 6%. I mean, do you, 
do you think the Fed is going, I mean, is, is the Fed going to hike more and you know, we get to 6%, 6.25%? Because you know, another dovish thing is I think that uh, many more hikes are kind of off the, the table. And maybe I'm the last one to get the joke that I didn't know that already. I mean, I, I know the curve was pricing that in. Um, but you know, uh, the, the, the market is now pricing in a, roughly a third chance of a hike in November, November 1st. I'm curious if you, if you, you know, you take the, uh, the, w- which side of the bet or you the take. Area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then as well as just, yeah, the, the thought of if oil, if oil spikes is the federal reserve, what do you think? Are you going to they look past it and say, this is just temporary or say, Hey, CPI headline CPI is at 7%. We're going to 7%, you know? So to, to borrow the term that he used several times, it's going to, it, what's going to matter, Jack, is the totality of the data. Uh, but not GDP, by the way, because that's not a mandate, he reminded us mm. uh, at Podium. Uh, it's just inflation and theoretically the labor market, but most of his prepared remarks focused on inflation being the more important. This is the singular focus of Paul Volcker in the early 1980s. That, that's what we're seeing right now. Um, I, I don't think that oil is going to be something that changes the terminal rate, um, especially to the extent that it ends up manifesting in slower economic output in the United States, which it will, um, especially given the employee retention credit is gone. So you, right now, to me at least, the biggest risk, and I think actually Jay Powell could sit down and have this discussion. To me, the biggest risk is the aspirational U.S. consumer is getting pummeled. They didn't have a mortgage a few years ago, and yet they moved out of the city. They didn't have a car payment a few years ago, and yet they do now. And it's a big car payment. They didn't have to pay their student loans for three and a half years. And they're the ones who make too much money to get forgiven. What I'm trying to say is higher oil prices are going to be less inflationary Mm -hmm. and a bigger drag on growth. In the long term. But in the short term, you could have a pretty big... You said said December, right? Almost in October. So you're talking about three months from now. If, if, if oil prices are much higher three months from now, I think that that is going to be a severe drag on GDP. Okay, so but let's take it to the extreme of in May of 2024, excuse me, uh, you know, oil prices are at $140. And they in this year, May 2023, they averaged under $70. So that's a 100% increase in the price of oil year over year in May 2024. Yes, the economy may be in shambles or, you know, a, a, a moderate to severe slowdown, but you're going to have, you know, the interest rates at 5.5% and inflation at 10%. That's a big, you think that Jay Powell will, will be able to look through that? Well, maybe we can call on Christine Lagarde and he can just hike into a recession. Yeah, yeah. Because Germany's had a third quarter in a row. Um, again, I, I'm not trying to avoid your, your question, Jack. Yeah. But- I'm just saying with the direction that we already, with the momentum that we see, seven revisions to non-farm payrolls in a row. I mean, seven, seven is, mm-hmm. one does not make a trend, three does. Seven is like slam dunk. Uh, so with the momentum, the downward momentum that we're seeing in the job market, the higher the price of the, the price of gasoline, the more it's gonna slow this economy down, the more jobs will be lost. Mm-hmm. 
And can you make an analogy maybe to 2008 when the price of oil spiked to $140 and the Federal Reserve did not hike interest rates? And in fact, soon after they started cutting and actually cut it to zero. They did. And, mm-hmm. and at that point, the 17, 25 basis point hikes in a row that Alan Greenspan engineered methodically, painstakingly, carefully, um, they had started to bite into the interest rate sensitive sectors, of course. We had housing completely collapse. And what are we seeing right now? We're seeing the highest percentage in a year of, of, of home buyers walking away, leaving their earnest money on the table, taking a loss and walking away from, from homes. We're seeing you know, buyer traffic, the National Association of Home Builders hit 30, um, just came tumbling back down. So we're seeing a double dip in, uh, in, in housing. So that's going to matter more, Jack, especially if prices go up. Um, yeah. It's just because it's just going to be one more thing to slow the economy down. Yep. Look, right now, this strike is awesome. This strike is just September. They passed the two million mark for the first time um, since April of 2021. Two million cars in inventory. It's kind of like yellow trucking going out of business. That was kind oh, of what saying awesome in that it actually lets the automakers sell inventory and not have it be produced. Yeah, it does. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, look, retail car sales slowed down a lot. It surprised Cox Automotive. You can never surprise Cox Automotive. <laughs> but right now it's 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 a parallel to yellow trucking taking freight capacity out of the system when freight was in recession. That ended up being a good thing for freight because it just eradicated a, an oversupply issue overnight. So this this is not necessarily a bad thing uh, for the auto industry. Mm. Uh, well, I wanna get into economics later, but first I wanna ask you your thesis, which you know, so far uh, played, played out very well, that the Federal Reserve will continue quantitative tightening and that they might even, and maybe it's even likely that they'll continue quantitative tightening as they cut interest rates, and that has been floated, you know, in, in the press. That's it's not mm-hmm. a they've, they've they've talked about that, uh, although it hasn't been confirmed. I'm seeing a few things within the, the uh, plumbing of the financial system, and uh, just the the amount of assets relative to the amounts of cash that is is quite high. Uh, so, like you have, uh, you know, Joseph Wang uh, warning that he thinks it's possible that you could have a liquidity crisis uh, that is re- resembles. March 2020. And Joseph Wang is not someone to, you know, make a lot of doomsday warnings. And I'll remind viewers, you know, he, the, like, uh, less than a week after Silicon Valley Bank failed and bank stocks were crashing and you have huge intraday, he was on this program, he said that he was buying bank stocks. So he's, you know, he's been an economic bull and, and, you know, not, not on that front, but he, you know, he knows that he's very familiar with the plumbing. He says, you know, reserves are going down. Uh, The amount of treasuries being issued is immense. Those are longer coupon uh, longer duration securities, they have coupons, so they're not like cash-like instruments, like a three-month treasury bill. And then I'll also pull from uh, you know Harley Bassman, who you know, tracks the agency mortgage-backed securities, which mm-hmm. you know people say, oh, Silicon Valley Bank, they lost money on their treasuries. It's not actually true that it was agency mortgage-backed securities, it's similar but but not uh, yep. the same instrument at, at all. Um, and he, uh, you know, a little wonky, definitely over my head, but the spread between mortgage-backed securities versus the ten-year is actually higher now than it was in March 2020, and it's approaching the level of, uh, of, of 2008. So again, this is not a credit thing about people defaulting on their, their mortgages. 
it, uh, these mortgages, you know, vast majority of them are basically guaranteed by the U.S. government, implicitly guaranteed. It's just a question of there's not enough cash to to hold the su- supply. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, how would how would your thesis play in in a world where we have that sort of liquidity event, a, a March 2020 situation where the Federal Reserve kind of doesn't have a choice? You know, if the if the long bond is it's going no bid, the Federal Reserve has to do quantitative easing and not vanilla quantitative easing. They have to, you know, get out their bazooka. Uh, what, what do you think about that? And as well as um, just the chance that uh, the risk of a liquidity issue on balance sheet uh, on balance sheets might be elevated. No, not high, but elevated than it was six months ago when it was, you know, very low. So, um, look, Jack, since that moment, that March 2020 heart attack in the Treasury market moment, the Federal Reserve has set up a repo facility that is to stand in, step in, in the event of these liquidity crisis moments in order to assure that there's ample liquidity and functionality in the treasury market. It's with good reason that Gary Gensler has said we're pushing forward with the, uh, central clearing of treasuries. This is all about reworking the mechanics and making sure that the backstop is there. There's an irony here in people talking about uh, the Treasury selectively buying back Treasury securities. There's an irony here, Jack, and that is that if you pull the least liquid Treasuries, buy them back, mm-hmm. quantitative ease them. God, I cannot believe I just said that. But if you if you pull the least liquid bonds out of the system, the Treasury buys them back, and Yellen certainly floated this idea then you're, you're taking away the arbitrage opportunity for the fast money traders who are a good chunk of volume. You're taking away their juice. So ironically, if you try and alleviate a liquidity problem, you're going to make it worse. And nobody really talks about that. And it's something that Joseph and I could probably get together in a room and talk about for hours uh, because the reality is the Stephen Cohen's of the world, the Ken Griffin's of the world, they represent a lot of treasury market liquidity and they play levered in this space. And they play with some of the least liquid issues, knowing that they're still treasuries. Mm -hmm. If you take those out of the system, you're taking away some of their toys. But the toys are dangerous. Oh, the toys are dangerous. Oh, there's absolutely no doubt, Jack. I'm not I'm not disputing that, and I would never question that, not for a moment. But again, the Fed has set up funding facilities since mm-hmm. the last time ample reserve regime was broken. And at last check, at last check, life insurance companies and U.S. public pensions who are losing chief investment officers, they're dropping like flies – People who are like, we must be in private equity. Right now, public pensions and life insurance companies are saying, why? Why do we need credit risk when we can go buy treasuries, when we can march up to, and that's exactly what they've been doing. They've been stepping up at the auctions. Natural buyers, organic buyers, people who are going to buy these treasuries and hold them until maturity because it allows them to match their assets with their liabilities. For the moment, at least, we're seeing a massive shift from these natural buyers into treasury auctions. So wherever there is, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Now, anything can happen. And I get that. But so far, we've seen 
an enormous bankruptcy cycle play out and nothing's broken. Nothing's broken. So I think you have to, to, to bear in mind that there is the overnight repo facility and the reverse repo facility. Mm-hmm. The Fed has set up, pretend you're at a bowling alley. They've set up guardrails on both sides for the little kids playing that don't want to throw the ball immediately into the gutter. Mm-hmm. Whereas there used to be one gutter open. Mm-hmm. Now they've put a guardrail up on that side of, of the lane as well. You know, I'm such a bad bowler that I think I was been a time where I've Thrown you cannot it. be tall as you are and be a bad bowler. Re- really wild. Uh, you know, I get the power, but I, I think it, it went off one of the, the railings and it went it went over. So in that case, if I was a hedge fund, uh, the rail the repo facility was neither neither bumper would would save me. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I hope that you're the exception. <laughs> yeah. In the financial system, and let me tell you, to Joseph's point, um, you know, because the Fed is assigning a price tag to having arranged the backstop for hold of maturity. And because capital requirements are going to go up, your largest players in the treasury market are pissed. So we have to remember what the catalyst was back in the day. Um, When Jamie Dimon said, that's my balance sheet, not yours. Yes, and again, I'm not doing Joseph's points uh, justice, but I, I think uh, what Joseph would say is that the liquidity of the treasury market is actually very overrated, and that if you look at the percentage of trading volume in the global treasury market for U.S. treasuries relative to how many ex- actually exist, uh, that's been on the decline for nearly 20 years, and it peaked in something like 2006. And we have this huge amount of record issuance coming out um, in, coming out right, right now. And I know everyone listening to this, they heard people worrying about treasury issuance you know, in the spring and Yellen, she issued treasury bills instead of treasury coupons and that the stock market went up. But the coupons are, are coming and they're here. And I think mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's over $800 billion of, of issuance. Uh, I, I, shouldn't, I should know that. I mean, maybe this quarter. Uh, I, I actually, I think for, the, for this fourth quarter. And you know, $80 billion sounds high. And so what's the difference between 80 billion and 800 billion? But 800 billions of issuance. That sounds like a huge liquidity drain. And now we actually feel quantitative tightening mm-hmm. on top of it. Whereas before Yellen was glossing over the effect of quantitative tightening. Actually during the debt ceiling standoff, Jay Powell quietly slowed the pace of quantitative tightening because he was mindful of a, a potential liquidity event. But the minute that debt ceiling was resolved, he jacked it back up. We've got other deposits on commercial uh, bank liabilities coming down hard on a weekly basis. And Mm -hmm. we're seeing that. We're seeing it play out. We're seeing it play out because just yesterday I saw that a furniture company, and right now it's so many furniture companies, I don't know why, nursing homes, but a furniture company that I grew up with that existed before I was born closed its locations in Austin and San Antonio, Texas. Really? And we are seeing the liquidity depletion play out in the real economy and play out hard and still nothing systemic. I just knocked on wood. Nothing systemic has happened. Nothing has broken yet. Yeah. I mean, the financial world and the real economic world, they are very different. And you know, agency mortgage-backed security spreads over 10-year treasuries, that's a pretty 
you know, separate world from the, the furniture store, but they, they definitely are um, uh, uh, related. So, Danielle, what do you think about this? Uh, you, you, uh, you, what is it now? Um, 4.9% real GDP for forecast from for the Atlanta Fed. Uh, for the third quarter, it, it was uh, you know in the in the five percent. Five point eight, it was five point eight, but now it's four point nine. Um, you know, you're a little skeptical of the economy, so I take it. You know, correct me if I'm wrong that you think that is wildly too high. What, what would your critique of that be? How did they arrive at that number for real GDP? I am. I'm going to dismiss the Atlanta Fed GDP <laughs> because it really isn't until like the final inning that it begins to reflect reality. What I will bring up is the fact that the New York Fed has reintroduced its own GDP now model and that the dot plot just happened to land on it. Mm. I mean, like a like somebody doing the vault in the Olympics during gymnastics. So uh, for, for what? For 2.1 for uh, 2023 or 1.5 for 2024? 2.1. 2.1, yeah. And I mean, because the St. Louis Fed was like a negative number. And then the Atlanta Fed was like a hugely positive number. And last week when the New York Fed brought back its own GDP now forecast, it was smack dab in the middle of those two. Mm-hmm. Again, well, uh, there's John Williams' influence. Okay, so 2.1 real GDP gross, that's inflation adjusted. With a inflation, PCE inflation of 3.3, that is 5.4% nominal growth. That is not recessionary. And then if you, even if you add... Uh, to 2024, 1.5 real GDP plus 2.5, 4% nominal growth. That's not recessionary anywhere either. It's not a boom by any means. And maybe the unemployment rate could, could go up, but it's it's not recessionary. It's not recessionary. But, yeah. but Jack, you have to pay attention to the data releases, right? Every time there's a data release, I'm watching the economics community go back and take down their second quarter GDP. Because Mm -hmm. why? Because the revisions keep being so negative. Because so much of what we're seeing in the economy right now is imputed, imputations, which are meaningless sometimes when the real data hit. And it's kind of like initial jobless claims. Are we seeing the full picture? I don't know. There's a 32% rejection rate. And Everybody who's going out of business, they're not filing unemployment insurance against themselves. Uh, So I get it. And there is a little bit of restocking going on right now. And there's a ton of fiscal spending pumping its way through the industrial economy. So right now, if you build bridges, dig tunnels, fix potholes, that money is actually flowing through the economy right now. And yet when you look at the business roundtable and the CEOs, you've got a majority of them planning layoffs. Why are they planning layoffs? What are they telling you about the economy? Were, but were they planning layoffs a year ago? No. You, if, if you look at the graph, it's come way down hmm. uh, in terms of the, just the, the broadening out of the percentage of people planning layoffs. Look, I, I'm scratching my head over Amazon and 250,000 employees. That's a big announcement, huge. Yeah. Within 72 hours of Google announcing that it was laying off hundreds of recruiters. So they're saying we don't even need people to stick around to hire people going forward. But that's hundreds versus a quarter of a million. 250,000, yeah. 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 Uh, So no, it's, it's intriguing to me because 
you're not hearing these kind of it's going to be a blowout holiday season forecast. Again, discretionary inflation is coming down. People are spending less on the things that they enjoy. I bought a plane ticket a few days ago for $42. That is a steal. From where to where? <laughs> um, it was to Las Vegas from, I want to say, O'Hare. That's really good. And this was not like ABC Incorporated airline where you have to sit on, you know, sit above the windshield, you know, and, and desperately hold on to your carry-on. This is actually a real bona fide airline. And where do you think that all of these figures, so, you know, retail sales, it was growing at 15% and now it's growing less than that, but not at a recessionary level. I mean, do you think it will continue to go down? Because if it normalizes, like for example, auto delinquencies, you know, close to zero and they've gone up to 6%, which sounds bad, but that's where they were at 2019. Mm -hmm. If they stay at 6%, that's not bad at all. You know, and, and auto lenders are going to make a lot of money with interest rates where they are. But if they keep on going that way, if they go to 12%, that's a huge problem. Same with credit cards. Yep. Auto finance news, which is kind of an industry, um, an industry trade publication. They recently said right now our repossession run rate for the full year 2023 is 2 million vehicles. So that would be a new record. Um, And your lenders are telling you that delinquencies are normalizing. Mm -hmm. And normalizing means it's moving up the FICO ladder. So it's no longer a subprime specific situation. And the, the, the one cohort, again, that seems to be flashing the most distressed is between the ages of 30 and 39. Mm-hmm. The people who are paying back their student loans, the people who have a $1,000 BMW payment, the people who moved out from the, from the middle of Manhattan, Midtown, where I am, to someplace in White Plains, and then they just got a property tax bill and they didn't even know what that was. So you're seeing and you're, you're seeing delinquencies on credit cards, delinquencies on auto loans in that 30 to 39, not 20 to 29, 30 to 39 is higher on credit cards. Interesting. I didn't know that. Well, you know, they got more kids. They got, they got more obligations. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's nice to be in your twenties. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, uh, the two of us, um, <laughs> very, so, very but, but you, you, you do say that, uh, it, it, the word normalization, yes, it is a, somewhat of a euphemism for delinquencies going up, but it is accurate to say that normalized relative to, le- to levels. Like in 2007, subprime delinquencies were already sky high, whereas now they're just at, you know, 20, not, not for housing. House, mortgage delinquencies now are, are incredibly low. Um, as are interestingly, commercial real estate delinquencies are, are super low. Like they're, at, you know, lower than I think the, the average during the, the, the 1990s. Um, well, there, there are still certain households that are covered by the foreclosure moratorium because they, they, they had a huge extension window. Yeah. So there's still, you know, households out there not paying a mortgage after all these years. And we wonder why they're able to service their other debt. Yep. Yep. And, and it, cha- it changes like, uh, you know, the, in the 1990s, a credit card delinquency rates we're, we're just, we're just higher than they are now for, for whatever reason. And we had a booming economy then, you know, um, and, and really, okay. Also, what do you think about, uh, the guy from Fox business who normally asks about, is the deficit too big? Jay Powell, uh, that guy, he had an interesting question about, uh, is he worried about credit card? Is there a bubble in credit cards, um, uh, spending? Uh-huh. I have a little bit of a view that, 
credit card uh, um, debt as a percentage of in income is actually lower than I think any time during the, the 2000s. It's coming up, but it is pretty low. I mean, we can put, put a chart of it. The, the peak consumer leverage was probably in 2001. And uh, mm -hmm. for, for revolving credit, like credit cards. And so it's, you know, people can spend, borrow more money on, the, on their credit card. It's, I'm not saying it's a good thing or anything, but it's, I don't know. I don't know if we're in bubble territory yet. What, what are your thoughts on that? So remember, the, remember that antiquated phrase, the K-shaped economy? Yep. So the wealth effect and the employee retention credit going to the wealthiest and people having more home equity built up in their homes than they ever had. Uh, people, their, their stock portfolios are, they pay off their balance at the end of every month. Mm -hmm. They don't carry a balance at all. Uh, you know, there, there's, the, the, the regulators that be, was it the BIS? Some regulatory entity uh, put out uh, a report just a few days ago about consumer loans and the explosive growth of this area. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about half a trillion dollars here the, of, of an industry that was largely non-existent back in 2001. Mm -hmm. That's very true, yeah. So my only point to you is there are other forms of debt when you're talking about credit card debt and the growth of credit. It's, you can't compare it because there's so many people who have, they still have money in savings. They pay off their credit card balance every single month. They don't have a thousand dollar car payment. They don't have any car payment. They bought their car cash. Mm -hmm. So it's, I, I keep pounding the table about people who make about a hundred to $200,000, which I have not lost my mind. I promise you, but that's the cohort that I worry about the most because the first three quintiles, first 20, 40, and 60% of U.S. consumers in terms the lowest, of- Lowest earners, yeah. The lowest earners. 60% low, yeah. 60%. Yeah. Uh, they're responsible for 38.7% of consumption. The top quintile, 38.6% of it all by themselves. People who make $230,000 a year or more. But it's that slice in between. And I'm not trying to put you to sleep, I promise. Nope. But it's that slice yeah. in between that makes between $100,000 and $225,000. They move the economic needle. They're the difference between the 38.6% and the 61.3% of that top two quintiles. They're the ones in the crosshairs. They're the ones I'm concerned about because they spend enough to make a difference in economic output. And they're the ones who are pulling back. Thanks. So, Danielle, while we're talking about economics, you I know you have are developing a hypothesis that is pretty anti-consensus about uh, March 2020. Tell us what is the hypothesis and why you're thinking this. So one of the six different gauges that the National Bureau of Economic Research uses to score recessions, which has since Truman was in office, since I think 1950 that the NBER has been tasked with saying the U.S. economy is in recession, it is an expansion. So one of the main barometers they use is inflation-adjusted personal consumption expenditures. Mm -hmm. So it, what we spend. In explaining their, their rationale for dating 
the recession of March and April of 2020, one of the things that they point out is the dramatic rebound in inflation-adjusted personal consumption expenditures. Okay, great. What happened on April the 15th of 2020? The CARES Act money, hundreds of billions of dollars, was directly deposited into people's checking accounts. The U.S. government closed the economy, put the economy into a lockdown, and then the CARES Act ripped it right back open. And we were headed into, my mentor Lacey Hunt always says, Danielle, ever since 1980, 1980, 1981, the double tip recession, ever since then, if you have an entire year of global trade negative for the full year, which 2019 was, the U.S. has not skirted recession. So my argument is that rather than a recession at all, what the CARES Act started in like $9.3 trillion later, what the CARES Act did was prevent the U.S. economy from going into recession. I posit that since we came out of recession in 2009, we are still in expansion today. Same cycle. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just what 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 is a recession the mber as you said they, they are an authority so officially a recession is what they say it is and officially they said uh march 2020 is a recession and that 2022 the two consecutive quarters of, of slowdown is not a recession i actually think i would probably agree with them on, on both fronts and i think you probably agree with me about, about, about 2022 i mean if the unemployment rate is going down and it's below four percent it's not a recession you know but again that's just, just my opinion uh in march 2020 the unemployment uh rate uh skyrocketed and re- so real personal consumption expenditures uh, crashed month over month, 10%. So that so it, it very quickly rebounded. So it was a very short recession. And I think what the MBER declares it's what, you know, a, a, few, a few months. But there have been a few uh, uh, recessions previously that are a, a few months long, like uh, 1950. I got Wikipedia open. So, you know, 1945, that's eight-month recession. Uh, 1953, 10-month recession. So this would be the shortest recession on record. But I mean, the unemployment rate skyrocketing and real PCE crashing, like probably in the history of humanity, other than, I don't know, you know. It was synthetic though, Jack. It was was man-made. What was the second shortest one? 1980. End of July of 1980. What was it? It it was created. It was engineered by, it was it was man-made credit controls. You could you could say, you know, 1974 was man-made by Saudi Arabia or OPEC. 1980 was man-made by Volcker, you know, I... Possibly. Yeah, it, 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 is, it is unlike any other recession in human history, for sure. At, at best, this recession should be labeled, whenever it happens, a double dip. Mm-hmm. And I, I think uh, your conclusion or your, your takeaway that we are at the beginning, uh, you're, we're still in the economic cycle that began in 2009 is interesting. The stimulus was so much that uh, it was a, it was the like was like the beginning of a new cycle, though, right? It, oh, unlike any we've ever seen, Jack. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's bizarre is that you've got. ISM new orders in contraction for 10 months, despite what the administration is spending. 
Yes. This is unheard of. It's unheard of that you've got your fiscal impulse has increased and ISM new orders are still contracting. That means that outside of what the government is spending, the rest of the economy is crashing that much harder in order to pull that aggregate number down. But but maybe it's crashing from a level that was superficially high uh, of Okay. The, the, the orders and in you know 2021 and early 2022 were so massive. Yep. Corporations were you know uh, uh, there were people were spending so much money for whatever product they wanted that they would pay tens of thousands of dollars for a fre- for a freight to ship it from from Shanghai. Yep. That a decline from a precipitous decline from that level of activity could still be you know not a recession. It was just it's it's slowed. You know I like to say like uh, a six foot. Uh, you know, compared to an eight foot tall man, a seven foot tall man is short, but you know, he's not short. And I'm not saying the economy is seven feet tall now, by the way. I mean, no, no, uh, look, Jack, I hear you. As soon as I see backlogs begin to pick up, then we can talk. Yeah. Because when ISM services hit recently and the market was like, woohoo, 80% of the economy blowing and going, I had to do a double take. I'm like, wait, did, is that backlog number in the 30s? Is that backlog number in the low 30s? They're telling you there's nothing coming behind it. The mm-hmm. future of demand is absent, negative. And every single regional Federal Reserve survey that we see come out, whether it's services or manufacturing, your backlogs are still contracting. So do you think the, what, the economic future that you see over the next two years, let's say, I'll give you, give you 24 months, do you think the NBER will call that a recession and why? What flavor of a recession will it be? I, I think that because... There won't be at the margin. And that's all that matters. I'm a flows person, not a stock person. I think because there's not a subsequent marginal form of fiscal stimulus coming. I'm not denying the deficit spending is not going to stay high at this very high plateau. But absent something new, which I posit is not happening until March of 2025, with this particular House of Representatives, without a marginal source of fiscal stimulus, without another employee retention credit that pumped $300 billion in cash into the economy. Let's contextualize that, shall we? And that's over, Danielle, right? And it's and it's over. Yeah. I've been campaigning. My work went up to the House Ways and Means Committee. I'm very proud. Um, but, the, but that they've pulled the plug on. But to contextualize an additional $300 billion pumped into the economy, and the IRS says it's not that high, but we've been tracking the data since day one, which is July of 2020. When the Wall Street Journal came out over the weekend and said the resumption of student loan payments could reduce over the next 12 months consumption by $100 billion, I mean, that helps you put into context at the margin what the employee retention credit was pumping into the U.S. economy in cash. All I'm saying is absent something along those lines that's fresh. I don't see a glide path. I don't see why Amazon is hiring 250,000 people. And so where do you think the unemployment rate peaks uh, in this in this cycle, because you know, I presume you see a recession of the next two, two years. You know, I, I, I you know, familiar with your view. So in that recession that we have, we might, might have coming, where would the unemployment rate peak? You know, because I've heard people say, oh, we're going to have a recession, but unemployment is going to go to 4%, in which case I would say, well, then you don't forecast a recession. Yeah, no, I don't. Um, we're seeing uh, labor force participation rate among moms hit record levels, 
Why? Because the marginal source of fiscal support, 250 extra dollars, extra dollars a month in food stamps, expanded Medicaid coverage. Those two things are gone. Mm-hmm. So what did we have? We had a flood of mothers come back into the workforce. You had that bump up in cost of living adjustment in social security in January. Yep. All the that seniors. That was huge. Like, that was huge. That was a huge. Uh, 9.8%. I mean. How much inflation went up by that's how seniors get that. And that's a huge sort of shadow stimulus that will not be here because inflation is now down. Exactly. And what did we see in the month of August? We saw 55 to 64 year olds. We saw their labor force participation rate hit a record high. So people are coming back into the workforce. We're seeing part time for economic reasons go through the roof. People are taking jobs that don't pay them very much because they have to take these jobs. And again, we've seen seven downward revisions in a row to non-farm payrolls. The only other time we've ever seen seven, Jack, was dot, dot, dot. And this is why I'm saying it's so important to listen to revisions Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. data. No matter where you see GDP right now, pay attention to the revisions because they're so critical. The only other time we've ever seen seven consecutive negative revisions to non-farm payrolls was emerging from the double recession of the 1980s and emerging from the great financial crisis. We were already out of recession the time we got that seventh one because employment is the most lagging of all economic indicators. Yeah. Post facto, emerging from recession. And we've got seven right now already. So there are there are cross currents in the economic data that the statisticians are not picking up on until they have, until the dust settles and they have the full amount of, you know, it, it was only 30 people who replied to the, to, to the survey for this particular month. And then once we get all the way up to 100, well, there's another downward revision. Once we find out what the actual data was, imputations. I'm just saying it it matters right now that people are disregarding and dismissing history as if it didn't exist. And looking at history, the stock market tends to start to decline before a recession uh, uh, starts or before we know where we're in a recession. Uh, what does the stock market activity, you know, we have we have had a, a rally, indicate uh, about the poten- timing of a potential recession? And if you're, you know, you're, you're quite confident that there will be a recession, uh, what's your, your views on, on equities? So there are two pathways for equities to take. If we have a soft landing, equities continue to rise after your rate height cycle has concluded. That's history. I don't deny that history. If you enter recession, after the rate hike cycle ends, your stock market goes down. My base case, and by the way, Jay Powell's base case, because soft landing is not his base case, according to him, that base case dictates that the stock market's going to go down. Because that base case for me is recession. And soft landing is not his base case. It is not, he said soft landing is not his base case. What do you, so there are three cases. There's soft landing, hard landing recession, you're in the hard landing camp. What about the no landing camp? Do you, do, do you think Powell is that, entertaining that? Uh, no, that was not his tone, Jack. Yeah. That was not, I mean, that's not what I picked up from what he, he interrupted the reporter. And this is a man who painstakingly stays on point. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, but again, I, this is, this is going to be the most drawn out recession call of my entire career. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I was trying so hard with all due deference to Kevin, o- Kevin O'Leary, one of the reasons I was fighting so hard about this employee retention credit was because I had to discover it to figure out why my thesis had gone off the rails. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm pounding my head up against the table saying, how are consumers consuming? How's this happening? When, you know, headed into December of last year, we were seeing the bankruptcy cycle begin to pick up. I'm like, how are, how are people still spending money? Because there's always an answer, Jack. I think another thing, I mean, it's, it's obvious, it's just the price of oil declined. So people said, hey, I don't have to pay seven bucks for gas anymore. That that helps. I mean, the I mean, Powell, Powell said it today, but the consumer sentiment is so correlated to that. It, you know, in June of last year, we we're like, consumer sentiment is the most negative since whenever. And it was like, yeah, because the whole price of oil is 120 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you actually well, saw inflation expectations for the next 12 months, bizarrely enough, in the University of Michigan come down. I was like, what's up with that? What's yeah. up with that? Buying conditions for homes, autos, anything discretionary. People are like, I can't afford it. I'm not buying it. So that's when you start to see people actually reflect different kinds of inflation sources. Mm-hmm. And so that, uh, um, uh, so that hike in November, the chance that the market's assigning a roughly 30% chance that the, the Federal Reserve hikes in November and a uh, you know, uh, 66% chance that the Fed is done. Do you think those odds are roughly accurate in terms of how you are seeing things? Or do you think you know, the chance that the Fed hikes is higher or, or lower? So, you know, we saw Mannheim come out and announce that, uh, that used car prices had ticked back up. Um, you know, if we see a, a hot core inflation print, I could possibly see this coming back on the table. But again, we're already seeing a spike in student loan repayments, which nobody, not me, not anybody, nobody anticipated that it was going to arrive in August. And yet people started paying them back preemptively on their own. That was weird, unexpected. But that's money that's not going into the economy. So, right. But it's, you- but it's, they, they have, you know, it's, they, they have enough money to pay it off. They're feeling people who are in a really tough situation don't pay off their debt at all. But, but right. you're right. Yeah, yeah. More, it would be more stimulative if everyone levers up for sure in the short term. So I just, again, I, I, I think the government sh- does shut down. Okay, Danielle, I am so far behind on this. When it, what, you know, is the government going to shut down and when and how severe will it be? Income taxes, Jack, that's a big number. California's a big state. They've not paid their federal income taxes. They will in three weeks on October the 15th, but but there's going to be a sucking sound coming off the West Coast when those taxes are paid and government revenue is going to go up. What's the shutdown? Uh, over and you know, for audience, forgive me for, for not. September 30th. Yeah. I mean, that's, we've got between now and September 30th for, you know, the far right to come together with their own party mm-hmm. in order to come up with a continuing resolution. And you know that they've got Kevin McCarthy's feet to the fire of Kevin McCarthy's talking about building a wall. If Kevin McCarthy's bringing up non-starters for Democrats, that means that his far right faction is has lit a fire under his ass 
And you know, we're just nine days short. And, and so what do you, you know, what gives you confidence that, that, that this will matter? Because so many political things end up uh, not, kind of like a comet that looks intense, but it kind of burns out in the atmosphere, like the debt ceiling drama, you know, oh, don't buy stocks, don't buy everything. It, no, the market has rallied. The economy has done fine since then. Yep. It was a total nothing issue with the benefit of hindsight. Sure. Um, obviously, fiscal can be incredibly important, such as, you know, the, I mean, the def- deficit spending, as well as CARES Act in March 2020. Uh, it can be incredibly important. But what gives you confidence that this isn't going to be a nothing burger like the debt ceiling? Not a damn thing, except, <laughs> except to borrow Chair Powell's term, the totality mm. of the data. If if it was only a government shutdown and the economy was humming along, great. But there are so many other things right now happening at the same time. Your gas price, your student loans, your ERC going away, Mr. Wonderbread's going to fat figure out some other way to rip off people. You're, I mean, you're seeing what 16% of all contracts to buy a home were canceled. You know, my buddy Ivy Zellman, she's like, mm-hmm. she's like multifamily. They're, they're, they're completely losing pricing power and it's just going to get worse. You only had like 46,000 of the 109,000 units of multifamily that came online for one month absorbed. So you've got excess supply sitting out there. So there are so many things happening at the same time. And back, you know, by the way, interest rates are still really high. And we haven't seen the full lag effect work its way through the economy. Yeah. So does the government shutdown matter in a vacuum? Hell no. Are there straws that break camel's backs? Yes, there are. Well, we'll see. Danielle, thanks so much for uh, coming on here, sharing sharing your insights. As always, people can find you on Twitter at Demartino Booth, and uh, they can find your, your excellent work at, at QI uh, Research. You've got the feather as well as the uh, institutional uh, uh, note that the quill that comes out every week. Uh, thank you again, Danielle, and thanks everyone for watching. Thank you for having me, Jack. 